0: Uh, We're in part two of a biblical theology of prayer on the Old Testament. So the first part was going through the narrative texts and Proverbs. And now we're going to look at the Psalms, which if we really wanted to do a deep dive on prayer, truthfully, we could spend multiple weeks just examining the theology of the Psalms on prayer. But because we don't have that time, um, well, if you were unwilling to sleep, we would definitely have that kind of time. But because we have bedtimes tonight and things like that, I just want to look at a few of these Psalms. And I just want to highlight big ideas that come out of them because when we get to the application part of this time together, we're going to come back to the Psalms. So if you'll turn with me, not first to Psalm 32, but first to Psalm 34, we're going to start there. So I'm going to have to do some on the fly editing uh, for the sake of respecting your time. Because I'm already behind the eight ball. As I promised myself, I would not be at this point. All right. So Psalm 34. And if you read the whole Psalm, uh, it's a prayer to God. But I just wanna highlight a few pieces out of it. So if you look with me in Psalm 34 verse one, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. So verse one of Psalm 34 puts forward two theological ideas in prayer. The first one is that prayer starts with blessing or praising the Lord. It starts with elevating his name. And that's an important idea because again, in the New Testament, we're gonna see Jesus say, Lord, hallowed be your name. And that's not a new theological idea. Psalm 34 says it, in fact, a myriad of Psalms say that same line, I will bless the Lord at all times. And that second piece, at all times, is supported by that bottom line, his praise shall be continually in my mouth. And then we get to the New Testament, we hear Paul say things like pray without ceasing. And we say, oh, that's a high elevation Paul. He must have just been one of the Pharisees when he says something like that. But the psalmist, when writing Psalm 34, says, praise continually in my mouth, blessing the Lord at all times. Those are two theological ideas put forth just in verse 1 of Psalm 34 regarding prayer. The second thing as we move, try to assemble a biblical theology of prayer. You'll notice um, in the middle of this psalm in verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You'll see he says, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Now that refers to a kind of sensory experience of God's goodness, which transcends what we can attain by theological understanding or knowledge. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good involves a kind of experience with God. And if you ask what that experience is supposed to be or look like, the the real answer of that is it's prayer. The reason he says, taste and see the Lord is good is because he started off praying And at this point, he's inviting other people into this kind of prayer posture with him. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the same kind of thing that I'm sure if you asked Hannah when she walks away from her prayer, she would say. She would say, the reason I leave joyful is because I'm tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, that he hears me, that he is a good God. That's why I'm now at this point satisfied with my answer. The psalmist here repeats that same idea. So tasting and seeing or experiencing the goodness of God is not some kind of, uh, transcendent experience that we have. It's not some kind of state of mind that we get into. It's prayer. It's tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And that kind of prayer experience moves out into the experience that we have in our lives, but it's rooted and grounded in communing with God in prayer. That's Psalm 34. Turn with me to Psalm 51. And we're just going to look at really the introduction to Psalm 51 Because it echoes a lot of what Moses does when he prays for the people or on their behalf. Remember, Moses goes to God and he says, if you will have mercy, if you will forgive because of the sinfulness of this people. And you'll notice Psalm 51 verse 1 starts off in the exact same way. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, same thing Moses cites, and according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The psalmist goes to God, in this case, it's David. And he goes to God with a posture of sinfulness, understanding his sinfulness, and nevertheless, approaching God in prayer. Now, you might say, well, this is a large period of time has passed since David has committed the sin. And now he's approaching God in prayer. Yes, but his sin has now just been shown in the public light to everybody. And he goes first and foremost to God in prayer. This is right after Nathan the prophet confronts him for his adultery and his murder of his own people. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Not because I'm the king, not as he prayed in 2 Samuel 7 because God has promised to establish his throne. At this point, he says, according to your steadfast love. He doesn't throw himself on the promise to keep his lineage. He throws himself on the steadfast love of God. And so you'll notice that when people pray, they highlight attributes of God that are specifically relevant to the kind of prayer that they petition God for. They don't just start off with broad petitions and then go with broad prayers. We'll get to that when we get to how to pray. But you'll notice David is specific. He specifically notes the things of God that he needs to be true about God in order for this prayer to go through. And he notes his specific sin as well. He's specific when he prays. And something we're not gonna invent when we get to the New Testament, that's something that is already true and grounded in the Old Testament. I think for the sake of time, we'll have to go straight over to Psalm 119. And we'll be, not in the whole Psalm, <laughs> 119 verse 129. And we're going to be looking at the whole stanza. And if Justin was here, I'd ask him to try to say that uh, acrostic line at the top there for me. It's, it's a P and an E, but I don't know what it says. So, uh, <laughs> Psalm 129. And I'm just going to be, uh, or sorry, Psalm 119, verse 129. And I'm going to just start off by reading in verse 129. It says, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face to shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. So this stanza is very indicative of the rest of Psalm 119. In fact, it features a good deal of the theology and the statements of the rest of the psalm. But in this stanza in particular, you see a few lines. The first one is he says, your testimonies are wonderful. Your testimonies are wonderful. When he's referring to the testimonies of God or the laws of God in this case, he's referring to the books of Moses. He's referring to what God has done in his people, Israel. He's referring to what he's done in the Exodus, feeding the manna, healing them, saving them, forgiving them, those are the testimonies the psalmist refers to. And he says those testimonies are wonderful. He doesn't even say that the testimony of God in his own life is wonderful. He says the testimony of God through the Israelite history is wonderful. And that's important because that is going to be the ground and foundation on where he moves from this point forward. So if you're an immature believer and you don't have a lot of experience or time with God, and you don't have a lot of personal testimony to God's faithfulness, you're not limited to your own testimony. You're not limited to your own experience of God. You also have a rich history of people experiencing God's faithfulness. It says, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. And in that second uh, verse of this stanza, you see the unfolding of your words gives light. What you're seeing kicked up there is the fact that the psalmist prays after meditating on the words of God. Prayer is not something the psalmist comes to externally apart from the Word of God. It's something that is rooted and grounded in a meditation and a reflection on the Word of God. Both the testimonies of God, his laws and his decrees and his saving of the people, and also the unfolding of just his words is what gives light. And that light imparts understanding. And that is what he's praying to God now. He's saying, Thank you for your Word. Thank you for teaching me your Word. Thank you for showing me what your Word says. It's all rooted on scripture. That's where the prayer starts. That's where it it goes from. In verse 131 of this psalm, he continues with kind of repeating that idea. He says, because I long for your commandments. He pants because he longs for God's commandments. And what he's, he's doing is he's saying, not only does he love God's word, not only has he meditated on it, but now he longs for more of it. Now it's created in him a kind of hunger to seek this out more. And that immediately will turn him to being repentant. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me. Now, in this case, he hasn't committed a specific sin that we're aware of. But out of reflecting on God's word, it produces him in a kind of posture of repentance. It says, turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. But he's not mentioned a specific sin. What he's done is on reflecting on the word of God. He says, you know what? If that's true about God. I am a sinner and I need God's graciousness. And that's important for us to know because sometimes when we approach Scripture, we can like categorize in our head and we say, well, I haven't committed any major sins lately, so I have nothing to confess. But Scripture reveals in us other kinds of sinfulness that's at work that we can confess as Scripture reveals it to us. And that's important because this psalmist models that for us here as he prays. He says, keep me steady. So he's asking for the Lord to keep him in the same way that we've seen the, the proverb ask for God to keep him neither rich nor poor. You see, he says, redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. So he's asking for him to be free of oppression, not for his own good or for his own prosperity, but so he can keep God's laws. He says, make your face shine upon your servant. That hearkens back to Psalm 34, where he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants to see God's face. He wants it to shine upon him. And in verse 136, We get something that we saw already in the prayer of Nehemiah. He says, He sheds streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And if you remember, something we glanced over in Nehemiah chapter 1 is Nehemiah confessing the sins of the Israelites at large, of which Nehemiah is a part. And he confesses not really his own sin, although he includes himself in that group, but he confesses corporately the sin of all the people of Israel, that people do not keep God's law. The same exact thing that the psalmist refers to here. It's very unlikely that he's referring to the Gentile nations when he prays this. He's most likely referring to the Israelites. He's most likely referring to the covenant people of God who do not keep the laws of God. And this causes him to break down because God's name is not being honored and he's not being given the glory that he deserves. And so in that, we've looked at, you know, Genesis and all the narratives, really, uh, the historical books, we've looked at Proverbs, and now we've surveyed Psalms as well, to try to put together what does the Old Testament say about defining prayer. And so just to highlight some of those things, just in a quick overview, we're not gonna recover all of it. But if you ask the question, how do we define prayer? Yes, it's going to God and talking to him. But more than that, it's going to God on the basis of who he is and talking to him. And it's more than that, it's going to God specifically for who he is that we need at that moment. And that's the ground and foundation for how we talk to him. The second thing we see is it's not only talking to God, but it's more than that. It's praising God. We don't just converse with God and ask him for things. We start off with prayer. We start off with acknowledging who he is, praising him for his goodness, and that leads us into a kind of asking for what we need. When we ask for our needs in the Old Testament, we've seen that we don't ask for things that we want because we don't want to be rich. We don't want to be comfortable. We ask for things that are needful. For us, As Proverbs says, as the psalmist here prays, we ask for things that we need. We can ask God for his blessings, blessings that he has promised his people. We can ask God to do what he said he was going to do. All of that is framed in the Old Testament. And most importantly, from Psalm 51 and also from Moses and from Abraham, we've seen that when you approach God as a sinful person, confession of sin is a big component of what that approach looks like. Moses approaches God starting off with who God is and the sin of the people. Because those are the two realities that cause a rift between God and man. And prayer is an attempt to try to overcome that rift in some way. It's Trying to commune with God and getting him to move to overcome the rift. And God is more than willing to do that, as you see. In Abraham's case, in Moses' case, in David's case, he's more than willing to overcome the sinfulness. But nevertheless, the sinfulness is a component of how we approach God. We don't approach him casually. We approach him with reverence and awe. Those are all things that we've seen thus far in the Old Testament understanding of prayer. So that's, if you like, uh, if you were to modify that question at the top, what is an Old Old Testament definition of prayer? And you'll notice the New Testament won't be much different, but we'll have different sources and understanding for it. So that is the end of our second uh, session, if you like, uh, going through the Psalms.